and welcome back for another episode of Once Upon a Nightmare. If you had heard the trailer I just put out, you will see that I have changed things up a little bit. This is going to be a full-on horror movie podcast. Yes, I've dropped the true crime, but if I feel like a little true crime fix, I can of course watch a film based on actual events and talk about that. As always, I am your host Lorraine, and in this episode I am taking you off land as I delve into the horrors of the sea. While the masses of water is a beautiful sight on the surface, you never know what killer creatures lurk beneath. Listen up as I discuss one of the greats, a film loved by many and directed by a very young Steven Spielberg. It was released in 1975 and put the fear in many to not venture into the waters ever again. This is Jaws. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine. An eating machine. <laughs> a great white shark. A stake to claim in the waters off Amity Island. You yell barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. This shark swallow you whole. Whoever have one do this before? He's trying to run! Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, the same name, which was also written by Peter Benchley, and that novel was released in 1974. Jaws is only a 12, but that does mean a child needs to be accompanied by an adult. And let's face it, this film is scary. It runs for just over two hours, and it certainly made some money. The budget was only $7 million, which it made back on the opening weekend in the US and Canada. But worldwide, it made just over $460 million. Jaws was classed as the first summer blockbuster. People did queue up for as far as the eye could see to see this film in the cinema. And according to Forbes in 2019, it was the third highest grossing horror film of its time. It got beaten by It and The Sixth Sense. And after that, Ghostbusters and The Exorcist. So in the top five, it was number three. It also became the first movie to earn $1 million at the box office. And apparently Spielberg thought he was actually going to be fired from this film because everything was going so wrong. He thought the studio execs were going to kick him out because the shark had so many issues, which I'm going to get to in a bit. This film, when I think back to it, it kind of really did start my whole horror vibe. I do have memories of other horror films, but this one, you know, I was really young, definitely under 12 because the house I was living in at the time when I watched it, I left when I was 12 with my family and I remember trying to be protected by my teddies. I put them all around my duvet because I didn't want the shark to get me. And, you know, I, I really stuck with me that because, of course, sharks do live under beds. But I did, of course, survive that ordeal because he didn't get me. Jules stars Roy Schneider as Martin Brody, the Amity Island Sheriff. When the remains of a young woman are found on the shore, it is determined by Brody and the medical examiner that this was the work of a shark. Due to the location and the fact that this small island makes its money from tourism, the mayor, Larry Vaughan, played by Murray Hamilton, he sees dollar signs instead of deaths, and he refuses to let Brody shut the beach. A young boy is then killed, and the mother offers money for the shark to be caught. Quint, 
played by Robert Shaw, offers to hunt down the shark for a larger fee and eventually, after more attacks, Vaughan agrees. Quint is then joined by Brodie, out on his boat, and Matt Hooper, who is from the Oceanographic Institute and he is played by Richard Dreyfus. They all go off to hunt down the murderous great white shark. And the setting for all this loveliness in Amityville is just a seaside town off of Long Island in New York. But of course, this is a fictional place and it was actually filmed in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. What is still so amazing about the film today is how much it still has an impact on rewatching and also for all those, you know, who are new to the film, like people do enjoy this. It's obvious that the technology of today isn't there, but this film was 1975 and it stands so strong today. I watched it myself actually today as I'm recording this and I still find myself, you know, preparing myself for certain scenes and, you know, we take no notice that the shark is fake. It's obvious the shark is fake. We're glad the shark is fake. But all that goes out the window. You know, this shark, when you're watching it, seems very real. And it's a testament to the talent of Spielberg, who, as I said, was very young. He was only 28 when he landed this gig. And he had recently done Jewel, which I did an episode in. And that was a TV film that got made longer to go out and the Sugarland Express. But what he did with this is, you know, beyond impressive. The film itself does give us a taste from the start as what we were in for with the death of the young woman. She goes skinny dipping on a night that she's out on the beach with some friends. She goes running into the water. And this film itself is full of iconic scenes, which people will know. And this starts right at the beginning as we see Chrissy, played by Susan Backline, being thrusted about by an unknown force. So she's gone in the water and we have we have a good idea, of course, it's the shark, but we don't see it. Now, apparently the reason we don't see the shark as much as originally planned is due to the technical issues, which I'm going to go to in, go to in a bit. And the mechanical shark, it just wouldn't work. I personally think this is better as it makes, a, it, makes it a bit more terrifying because we can't see. It is quite dark. And of course, she's in the ocean and she's out quite far. She obviously can't reach the bottom. She's got nowhere to go. And it lasts quite long and we really do get this like clear shot of her face and the fear and the noise and, you know, the sounds that she's making and the way she's feeling and you feel you'd feel that yourself, obviously. And then she gets thrown about, but she manages to grab hold of that floaty thing. Boyo, boyo, what are they called? I don't know. Anyway, and so she's in there for a bit longer, but she knows she's screwed because this thing isn't going to save her because her feet are still in the water. And with this film, I'm not surprised that it was nominated and it won Best Original Score, John Williams, Best Editing and Sound Mixing because these three things together, especially that opening scene, it just had more of an impact. It's cut so well that we don't need to see the shark. Our imagination and what they did, that was scary enough. And man, what an opening scene to really show you what you're in for. And it just keeps getting better. And Susan Backline herself, she was she was a stunt woman. She specialised in swimming which was appropriate for this. And it looked like a really tough part to play as she was attached to this big mechanism that threw her about. But it was a good choice probably to hire someone like her because that would have been a lot to take. Also here, and in many scenes, we get to see the film from the point of view of the shark as we see the underwater camera making you know their way to these unsuspecting victims. I suppose, you know, I am a big fan of the whole killer's point of view and it makes it that bit creepier as we see what they're seeing. You know, in this scene, we have that iconic shot of her kind of floating in the water and it looks so nice. But, you know, there's a shark going up towards her. And also then we get a realisation of what has actually happened to her when remains are found on the beach. And it's this arm, Chrissy. 
And the shot that we see, I actually thought this was fake, but it was a real person. You know, when you see the hand on the beach, they're wearing a ring. It was a crew member who had that lovely job. I wonder were they real, cra real crabs around her? Because that was pretty disgusting. So after this death, we obviously get to see more and more of the lovely Mayor Larry Vaughan. While the shark is the killer, there are other creatures that we don't like from the start, and that's him. He's a piece of money-grabbing shit. It's so obvious there is a shark, and a shark that kills. But all he cares about is the money, is the tourist, and obviously he wants votes. He wants people to vote for him next time he tries to go for mayor again. And even after a little boy Alex is killed, he still lets people go into the water, and even apparently his own family, his own kids... These people are coming in droves. It's July 4th weekend. And personally, there's so many of them. And, you know, you watch all the cars trying to park. And I'll be honest, I've never understood the desire to join this surge of individuals who go to places like this on the weekend or during the holidays. It's so busy. And I'll be honest with you, that is my idea of hell. But they all travel there. And as I've said, we've seen Alex get killed. And here we get a bit of a blink and you miss it moment of the shark. And, you know, this is kind of like why I thought the whole thing was intentional the way he did it. It's like we don't see it at the start when it's happening to Chrissy. And then here we get a bit of a, did that happen? And we kind of respond the way the beachgoers do. They think they've seen something, but they're not sure what it is. And everyone's kind of slow getting up and to get going out to the sea to see what's going on. But once it sinks in what's happening, that's when the panic starts. As people desperately hunt down their loved ones. As everyone is being herded out of the water, you do notice that Brody doesn't actually go into the water himself. He's kind of like running on the edge of it. It turns out that he is afraid of the water. And for most of the time, he, he refuses to go in. And to be fair, when he does have to go into the water at the end, he doesn't really have much choice. Spielberg himself isn't a fan of the ocean. And I have to say, I am with him there. You have no idea what lurks behind the surface. So I tend to stay out of the way. You've got to respect the sea. That is one thing we see is these scenes in the night. You think the ocean is, you know, scary during the day, but at night it's even more so. And plus, no one is safe once you go into the water. Jules, he doesn't discriminate. If you get in his way, you're fair game in his eyes. The second kill is a young boy. The first kill is a young woman. And then the film makes the all-time no-no. They kill Pippet the dog. So when dogs are killed and kids are killed, all bets are off. So as we've had like this brief shot of what the shark looks like, what we think we've seen, we do get this quite a big view of what it actually does look like because of the man in that little tiny red boat. He shows us what the shark looks like. It really is terrifying as we see the teeth of the shark and how big it really is in comparison to this man and his boat. And of course, you can't forget that scene as his leg floats to the ground in full form. It goes to the bottom. They're in a pond. So in this pond is Brody's son, Michael, who is played by the late Chris Virabello. So, of course, Brody, knowing that his kid is in there, he makes a run for it. And when he said that he could go into this pond, I thought personally that, because to me, a pond is a, you know, patch of water that's, you know, a pond. It's, it, it's not, it doesn't lead out into the ocean. But obviously it did here. So this area wasn't closed off to people and the shark had no issue getting into it. So, I'm not sure what he was thinking, letting him go there. Anyway, he did. and But I do have to mention that while all this is going on, there's these two little, two little boys who pretend to be a shark, which is funny. But at the same time, the little shits, they could have got eaten. But yeah, like such a prank. But anyway, 
So the latest events of everything that's gone on are, it's the last straw. And this is when we see the five characters, Brody, Hooper, Quint, Jules, and of course the orca, Quint's little boat, go out to sea. Hooper himself, he's quite an interesting character as he's got no ties to this island and he shows up to basically do his job and let them know what they're dealing with. He's also the only one apart from Brody. He's got any sort of rational thinking and, you know, he even mentions to Brody that he's glad he's working with him because he's, Brody seems to be the only one with a bit of sense. Hooper's seen as a college boy, you know, he never likes to get his hands dirty, but he might not be the fisherman Quint is, but when we watch him cut open that shark to see if there's anything in there, well, his hands got dirty enough for me. Hooper explains to some of the residents of Amity that the shark, you know, what it actually is. Some want to listen, some choose to ignore his advice on what's going to happen. And the fact that he isn't from the island also doesn't help. You kind of know what locals can be like. Sometimes they tend to get a bit of an attitude when taking advice from others. What do they know? You know, what do they know? They're not from here. Well, he knows a lot. And he knows that that shark that you've caught, that's a tiger shark. And they all stand oh so proudly around it. They don't care if it's the culprit or not. And that's the annoying thing when they see them catch this shark is how unwilling they are to accept that there is a slight smidgen of a chance that this isn't the shark that's terrorising and killing the island's occupants. And that's one thing this film really does emphasise. And it's the dick measuring that goes on. Oh my God, the need to be so right by them all is painful. No one cares whether they actually have the right shark and who is dying. They all just want the pat on the back and look like the main man. It's so fucking pathetic. Brody, you know, he's not that way. And it really shows uh, in many scenes, actually, but one that really got me. And it's quite hard to watch. And that's that's when the mother of Alex, she approaches him and she's full blown head to toe in funeral attire. And she just walks up to him and she's, she slaps him in the face. And granted, while he did try and shut the beaches and stop people from going into the water, he didn't, he didn't try enough, really, did he? he was, and I know he was pressured by the mayor and town people. And you kind of get torn for him as he knew and he should have done it. But he doesn't really know the ways of the island. But to be fair to him, he stands there. He takes it. And he lets her do what she needs to do. He doesn't try and pass the buck, especially because standing next to him is that coward, the mayor. He, he just stands next to him, not speaking up with his head slightly down. And when she turns and leaves, he says to Brody, she's wrong. And Brody again, accepting blame, says, no, she's not. And it's true. But that coward and everyone else, they're standing around, you know, who didn't want the beach closed. And like they're just standing around that shark, you know, that could potentially have the little boy in because at this stage we don't know. And they're just basically laughing and shaking hands and patting each other on the back. And they don't give a shit about Alex or his family or anyone else for that matter. And it's just really, really irritating. But finally, we have some proof, some proof that we can tell the mayor. And that is when Hooper finds a tooth. Now, this scene when he's telling the mayor about the tooth, it really makes you want to slap the ever-living shit out of him. So they're down in the water and he sees this tooth and he gets it, but then that face, you know, that face that pops around, that's Ben Gardner's face. And he gets a bit of a fright. He drops it. Who can blame him? But the mayor, he doesn't want to hear it. He just wants a tooth. And he's in the way he says to him, oh, so, so you don't have the tooth. You know, it, oh, it really grated on me. 
And with Brody, then you really feel like for him because he's trying so hard and doors are being slammed in his face, left, right and centre. And eventually everyone, as I said, they've decided that the best way is for Quint to go out to sea. And as Quint brings uh, Hooper and Brody with him, you can tell even then Brody is so out of his He's so out of his comfort zone. And that's kind of the thing with this whole film. He's he's never allowed to do his job. and But there's some of his job that he, he doesn't really know how to do because he's not used to that type of environment. So out to sea, they all go. And, you know, we're getting off dry land here. And we can see what this shark is all about. What Jaws is all about, a.k.a. Bruce. Yes, his nickname is Bruce. He was actually named after Spielberg's lawyer. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it. Um, but he is a great white and he's a very big one at that. And as we go out to sea and witness Jaws in all his glory, especially as he swims past the little boat of Quince, we really get the full scale of what he's like. I feel like this is when we really get to see who Jaws is. He's about 25 feet in length and weighs about three tons. So I had a little gander on the Smithsonian Institute. It's an institute that likes to dabble from time to time in ocean life. And they have this scale of great white sharks. Um, you know, when I talk about animals, I like to, well, animals, sea creatures, whatever you want to call them. Um, I like to have a look at the scales and see what else is out there. And they do have actual bigger ones. So there was a Baskin shark at 33 feet and a whale shark at 46 feet. But of course, we can't forget Sharknado sharks because they're the real sharks of the sea. And I really need to watch those films. But, you know, for now, we've got Bruce. He's quite big. And it sounds like this mechanical shark gave the film a lot of headaches. The team who brought this shark to life was by Bob Matty, uh, was headed by Bob Matty. And he worked on the giant squid in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. For this, they created three sharks, but they were actually all destroyed after filming. And apparently Spielberg wasn't sad to see them go as it just didn't work properly. The shark itself was a mixture of animatronics and then we also had footage of real life sharks off the coast of Australia. And the scene within the cage that we see Hooper go down into, it was actually a shorter man and he was in there to make the shark look bigger than it actually was. So the animatronics were created with a steel skeleton covered in a polyurethane rubber skin. I really sound like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, the sharks were then powered by air power pneumatic mechanisms that, in fact, they worked really, really well. Perfect, almostly. And that it was until they got in the water. On land, these things ran so smoothly, but in water, it all went to shit. The salt water apparently flooded the tubes and it made it all unresponsive. And one of them did actually sink, but they did manage to retrieve it. But when they did, it was no good. They did create a fourth Bruce from the original mold used on Jaws that sat in Universal Studios in Hollywood for 15 years. But alas, this was not to last as poor Bruce was shoved aside and thrown into a junkyard. It was actually The Walking Dead's Greg Nicotero that would bring this beast back to life in some form. So after years of lying around amongst all this rubbish in a junkyard, Bruce the Fourth was rescued and restored and now sits at 1,208 pounds, 25 foot long, He's 46 now, and he lives out his days in the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles. He's kind of 46, but you know what I mean. But now let's get back to the original Bruce. Well, one of the three. So, Jaws, I'm going to stop calling him Bruce. Jaws has decided to follow Quint, Hooper and Brody out to the ocean because people have stopped going into the water. So, as he mentioned, to get people out of the water, the food supply stops. So, as this has stopped, he heads off after the three in the tiny boat. Now, apparently, they were going to use a real shark 
train one up to do little tricks. But thankfully, some marine biologists, they laughed and said, no, big pass on that one. Great white sharks, they don't need to, they don't like to be confined. Apparently you can't keep them in uh, captivity. And when you do, they eventually die because they keep pounding on walls. They hurt themselves. So they had to use a mechanical shark. And to be honest with you, could you imagine being told this is what you're going to be doing with a great white? No, there's no one I think that would do that. And the three sharks um, that were made were obviously used for dif different shots depending on what they needed at the time. They did actually film a lot in the ocean and you'd think the studios would have been used, but no, they were they were out in the ocean most of the time. And while I do love the scenes back on the island, the second half of the film is my favourite when they're out at sea and they've got nowhere to go and nowhere to help them. Quint is becoming very unstable more and more as it goes on and spends a lot of his time drinking and seeming like he was very drunk which apparently he was on set, but it worked because he is great in this. I really do like Robert Shaw um, in this. I don't really know much about him, but in this, the kind of watching this makes me want to go and watch more stuff on him. Now, would I trust him to go out in the middle of an ocean to catch a shark? No. And you really do feel for Hooper and Brody. As you know, they have no say in what's going on. This is Quint's boat and this is Quint's rules. He has no, he has no capability to listen to them, to be honest with you. And Brody then starts realizing that the shark is a lot bigger and that is when you know he sees it in real time and things get a bit more real to life and he utters that most iconic line. You're gonna need a bigger boat. So the the boat trip at the start it's quite calm everyone's kind of like you know quite mellow but then the more and more we see the shark the more and more unhinged and chaotic everything gets and that's what I feel like with this shark it's kind of like the the, the more and more, the bigger and the bigger, the more just batshit crazy this film gets. But I do have to mention, there is one scene while they're on the boat that I really loved, and that was the amazing monologue that Robert Shaw actually does. And that's the whole story of the USS Indianapolis, which is a true story and a very sad one at that for all the men that died. There was like this massive shark attack after this, um, after the Indianapolis was torpedoed. And apparently it was one of the biggest shark attacks at one time. And there's quite a lot about this online if you want to go and check it out. But Shaw does this amazing speech here. And you're completely drawn into what he's saying. And you really focus on him and what he's saying and how he says it. It's just a really great scene. And it's kind of, for that minute, it's a quite a peaceful scene. Because, you know, we're just listening to him as the water's rocking. And the two of them, they've all had some drinks and stuff. So it's a really good scene. But Quint then does become more and more unhinged, if that's possible, and he smashes out the radio, which is, of course, the only way of contact. And I, I suppose he wanted to be in control. He didn't want anyone coming to help. And, you know, he thinks he's the man to do the job. But unfortunately, he's the one that ends up getting killed. And his death, I think it's the most brutal out of all of them because you see it in such detail. Like when Chrissy was killed, it's kind of you just see her thrusting about. You don't see a shark. When um, Alex was killed, we kind of see the shark flip over. When the guy gets his leg bitten off, that was quite bad. But this, because we've grown attached to Quint, we like Quint, we want Quint to survive. So the, the shark kind of jumps onto the boat, so to speak. And, you know, he starts to slip down. And you can imagine as he's heading for that, how scary that is. And he's trying to grab hold of anything. And the boat's at an angle and it's wet. And... You know, he gets hold of Brody's hand, but they can't grip it. And the feet go in first, then the legs, and then the body. And he's screaming, and he, the, the shark chomps down on his chest, and blood spurts out of his mouth. And he's still alive here for a bit until he drags him under. And this is terrifying. 
But then we kind of really feel sorry for Brody because Quint's gone, the boat's sinking, the shark's still there, and Hooper's gone because Hooper had gone down into the cage and he never came back up. So Brody is rushing around trying to figure out what he is going to do. And of course, he throws that um, giant, that, that not giant tank, but that tank in his in his mouth. And as the boat's sinking, we see Brody going down further and further. And he's got this cylinder in his mouth. And then he shoots and we get that great quote. Smile, you son of a bitch! And the music that is playing in this scene is quite menacing as the shark tries to get Brody. You know, the boat is sinking really, really slowly. And luckily, Brody does manage to shoot and explode the shit out of, out of the shark. But this scene is all very fast. It's very chaotic. We see the shark heading for Brody. And if he gets him, he's so fucked. He's so fucked because he's basically in the water at this stage. There is no getting away from that shark if he doesn't kill it now. And as he does, you know, it's 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 kind of um, nice, actually, I suppose, for Brody because he, you know, he was the rational one. He was the one who wanted to do the right thing from the very start, but he wasn't experienced and he knew he wasn't, but he's actually the one in the end that kills it and that saves, saves the day in a sense. And his laugh when the shark lumps are landing in the water, you know, as, as the remains are slowly sinking, he's so overjoyed and I do like that. And he's lying there and he's exhausted and he's probably thinking, how am I going to get back in? Our boat's gone. I don't have any radio. And they're quite far out. And, you know, they're, but they are free of jaws, which is good. And luckily, Hooper, he does surface and he swims over. And the look you see is it's really quite priceless from Brody. He can't believe it. And I just love how they then ride off into the sunset together with those two yellow barrel things. And it just it's so peaceful. The, the sea is peaceful. Everything's peaceful. And it actually looks quite nice, despite the fact that they're quite far from shore. And, you know, just to round this up, this film is just such a great and it's a film I will watch over and over again. And I love it. And I just hope it goes on forever. And, you know, get your kids to watch it when they grow up. Get If someone hasn't watched it, get them to watch it. Because I just I think it's an amazing piece of cinema history and everyone should see it. And it's scary, but not overly scary. And you can kind of turn away at the scary bits. And um, that's my little take on Jaws and my first episode as a full-blown horror movie podcast. So I hope you enjoyed it. But now for something a little less bitey. And that is my promo for my good friend Ray. She has changed things up a bit on her podcast too. She is over at Not Before Coffee. And her first episode came out and she did it on Spaced, which obviously a lot of people love. And it's a great, great show. But I'll let her tell you about how things are going to be going on from now on over at the coffee house. This is Not Before Coffee. Hi, I'm Ray, avid reader, film fan, TV show marathoner, long-term depression sufferer and caffeine addict. In this podcast, I open up about my lifetime of experience with various mental health diagnoses and how I cope with them on a daily basis as well as my love of all the books and the TV shows I just can't stop watching. So where does the coffee come in, you may be asking? Well, I can't function before I've had at least my third cup of the dark roasted bean. 
Welcome to the interesting world that is my brain with every single episode of Not Before Coffee, found where all podcasts are. And I'd like to say, make sure you go check out Ray, her podcast, <laughs> and don't forget to rate and review on iTunes and Podcasts. I'd also like to say thank you for listening to my episode, and don't forget to rate and review on iTunes Podcasts for me. And if you want any more updates and behind the scenes, you can follow me on Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, on Twitter and Letterboxd as A Nightmare Pod, on Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare, or you can email me as Once Upon a Nightmare Pod at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. I will chat to you again next week. Bye. The Pod Breed Network is strictly for the small podcasts that are up and coming in the vast world of podcasting. Pod Breed is made up of many diverse podcasts coming together to achieve the same goal of being the best damn podcast network on the planet. Find out more at podbreed.com.